And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. Wonderful day here on the program. Very excited to be here. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting from the home studio in Vienna, Austria. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, David Clement, who's out there in Toronto. David, how goes it? Uh, it's going well. It's going well. Lots to talk about um, this week. Lots to talk. I mean, I know we have uh, our colleague Bill on the on the program um, to close out today's episode, talking about COP twenty six in Glasgow, um, which I think pretty much irritates everybody. Um, <laughs> I'm not other than the people who were there. Whether you're on the left or the right, I think everyone just seems irritated by that type those those shenanigans. But we'll get more into that into that later. Um, I mean, the first big one that I had on on my list is a Supreme Court decision, um, which for me hits close to home because I'm such a lover of comedy. Uh, the the Supreme Court ruled five to four in favor of comedian Mike Ward. And so for listeners, the background on this story was he told a joke about um, a, I I believe, a developmentally disabled um, child who had become quite popular in Quebec, and he had been sued, and it had gone through human rights tribunals, and it was originally decided that he owed the family $40,000 or something crazy. And it made its way all the way to the Supreme Court, and they ruled in favor of the comedian and in favor of his free expression. Um, So a good outcome for anyone who cares about the very chilling effect that that would have had on not just comedy, but speech in general, Um, but also concerning that four Supreme Court justices saw it the other way. Um, so it's an interesting one. I know Yael, you have you followed that for quite a while, um, and you actually listened to his comedy both in English and in French. Um, and apparently, he's just as funny in French as he is in English. Um, I find him oh, quite yeah. funny in English. My so. court is great, and we're talking about the Supreme Court of Canada, um, correct? For, for things, not yes. to say that uh, John Roberts doesn't have an opinion on uh, very good comedy, uh, but yeah, yeah. That, that was a big deal, and. <laughs> The interesting thing about this case is, you know, all of the headlines were Mike Ward, uh, Supreme Court win after mocking disabled singer. And it's like there's so much context missing here. This was a public figure. It was a boy who had, I believe it's called Collins syndrome, uh, one of these diseases. And the idea was that he had a dream of singing before the Pope and and uh, in front of the Montreal Canadiens game and singing in front of all these people because he did not have much time to live. So that was generally what people saw in the culture. And the joke that Mike Ward made in one of his uh, specials, and apparently he had been making this joke for like two or three years, and there was absolutely not a word about it, but I think they aired it once on TV, and that's what caused it. Basically, his joke was he did all of this stuff, and... He's still not dead. Yeah, it was essentially like a Make-A-Wish Foundation joke that like they grant these wishes yes. to people yes. who are terminal, and then obviously he's still alive. So, I mean, certainly I can see why people would find it distasteful, but at the end of the day, it's it's a joke. Like, 
we have to yeah and, and it was it was a joke that that carried on i he never did it in english it was only in french in that particular context but still the human rights tribunal of of quebec and this whole i mean that seemed very and i hate to, to use this term but it did seem very orwellian in that there were these fees and he had to pay this and you, you mentioned the various uh sort of decisions that came from the other from the lower courts basically mike ward lost all of them and it was only upon appeal to the supreme court that he was finally able to get this ruling and this was many years and he did not have many friends in the you know french press in quebec and throughout canada he wasn't necessarily being you know heralded as a hero he was mostly being denounced and people were saying he shouldn't have the right to do that but it's true it's all about free speech and whether people have a right to not feel as if they're being insulted or made uncomfortable and what are the lines with comedy and free speech but after all of this i it seems as if there's a lot of people who are now coming around and saying oh yeah 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 mike we were all on your side uh he hasn't talked about that too much he just put out a video uh but you know he is a he's the most successful francophone podcaster in north america still ongoing comedian great jokes best delivery and uh, he also has podcasts and stuff in English. So he's uh, uh, one of those rare, great bilingual uh, comedians out there. Yeah. I think Robin Urbach at the Globe and Mail had a particularly good um, op-ed on this where she's, her take was just like the Supreme Court came a vote away from completely restructuring how we think about free speech. And that's pretty scary. Um, so glad yeah. that that disaster was averted. Um, what else do you have on your list of, of hot topics you want to you wanna get off your chest? Yeah, hot topics. The world is warming. <laughs> we'll talk about that with uh, Bill Vietz in the next segment. Uh, yeah, a couple things. I mean, we had uh, some of these electoral victories that happened uh, over the course of Tuesday, which was Election Day, uh, municipal elections throughout the United States. So some surprising things, some not surprising things, particularly the gubernatorial race in Virginia. Um, I've mostly avoided this online because it's fairly toxic. Uh, I just know it's a it's a bit of a, a bit of a self own uh, for many of the the Democrats uh, that are there. And you know, I I would I would hope that we would not continue this culture. I'm just really getting upset at this culture war, and I'm thinking of just stepping off the train, David. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the owning of the cons, the owning of the libs, it's just after a while, it gets a bit tiresome. And like, we do this full time, right? Yes. So I can only imagine for people who have even bigger platforms and have to discuss and talk about this all the time, and ordinary people who just tune in and hear it every now and then and then go back to their jobs. I mean, I, what well, must they be thinking? I mean, the, the thing, the takeaway for me, because I did dive into this a little bit, the takeaway for me is... When ordinary people have concerns, it is generally not best practice to say that they're all extremists and their concerns are fabricated, which is essentially what um, the Democratic campaign did. It's what former President Obama did. And that just added fuel to the fire for the people who were concerned about school choice and what is taught and what – and this is outside of whether or not you think the the debate actually – merited such scrutiny um those were the concerns that people had and i think the polling showed that like 80 percent of virginians when polled generally thought that parents should have more say in regards to what's go 
in regards to the structure and what goes on in the education system. So for the Dems to run on the exact opposite of that um, just kind of shows that they maybe haven't learned some of their lessons, that they didn't beat Trump because of some uber-progressive agenda becoming very popular. They beat Trump because Trump beat himself um, because of his own actions and behavior and demeanor. And I and what's it, what, what, the biggest, like, I think the aha moment for me was when Biden was asked about that because they asked him, hey, you beat Trump by like 10 points in Virginia. What happened? And he was like, well, I was running against Donald Trump. That's why I want, and like, and it's like, oh, okay. So at least Biden knows, like, there was a unique characteristic to the presidential election where he was running against someone with high unfavorability ratings uh, for a variety of reasons, and that this was not the same election. Um, I think this was a an owning of the very online crowd, and I'll make a parallel, you know, to everything that's happening with social media. We always hear about these eco chambers and Facebook and Instagram and all of these people just seeing, you know, their own propaganda that they're sharing and uh, there's not actual capital T truth. And it seems as if there's just a, a, an apparatus of many political actors who get trapped in these kind of eco chambers and start believing a lot of their stuff because they start getting traction or they start getting likes and retweets or views on YouTube. But you know, everybody is talking about this stuff. Everybody's weighing in. You have people in California who are very active on the Virginia race. So all of these people are liking and tweeting and stuff. And that just gives you a false perception as to, hey, maybe my message is actually really popular here in my state. When in actuality, uh, no, <laughs> your residents, your citizens don't like that message because normal people who vote are not very online people. And whatever problems or conspiracy theorist, uh, you know, echo chambers that they say exist on the right, you know, the same thing is exactly true on the left. And I, I, I find that we've gotten this ivory tower mentality that's taken over so much of, obviously, academia, but it's gone into, like, the political consulting world. And, you know, there's a lot of really highly paid political professionals, paid way more than you or I, David who do this full-time, and, you know, these people are as far removed from ordinary people who shop at, you know, Home Depot, Lowe's, or, you know, Farmer Pre, uh, than, you know, Joe Biden. You know, they do not intermix with normal average people who go to diverse settings with colleagues who are from different backgrounds. This assumption that everybody is racist and votes that way that one galls me the most because I don't think any of these people have spent a second in Virginia outside of the D.C. The, yeah, the <laughs> suburbs. Yeah. And so the, the 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 funny thing here is, I mean, to quote the very wise philosopher Dave Chappelle, he's like, I don't care about Twitter because Twitter's not a real place. And I think that this pretty much exemplifies that. Um, and then one of the, ironically, the tweets that I thought encapsulated this quite well when in regards to the everyone is racist claim it's like how do you do the mental gymnastics to say that someone who voted for hillary and then voted for biden who didn't vote for 
the Democratic candidate is somehow racist. Like you're, you're, they flipped the state who not too many years ago was pretty solid blue. Um, so you're, you're talking about the same voters and how do you reconcile yeah. that? And it's like, I mean, the Democratic like strategy machine has, has shifted so far from the David Axelrods or the, um, uh, what, what's I'm for, why am I blanking on on his first name? The Raging Cajun. Uh, oh, James yeah, Carville. Carville. Like, listen to those guys, and they pretty even Van Jones on CNN was like, I think we need to realize that we come across as very annoying and elitist. Yeah, like <laughs> and out of touch. Yes. Yeah, you don't say. Um, you don't. Say. And I mean, if you actually have that realization and you internalize it, well. There you go. Maybe maybe you won't be so distasteful to so many voters in a state in a race that you had no business losing. Um, and then one other real quick story about how Twitter isn't a real place. There was a, a state Senate race in New Jersey, and the Republican candidate was essentially just like a random truck driver. He spent like 100 bucks on his campaign. And I, don't, I haven't seen the final figures, but I think he's won. And he beat like the Senate, the state Senate majority leader, and so here you have like yeah, he he did win. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, he's like an internet hero now because his campaign video was like filmed on an iPhone, and it's just like him walking around saying he wants lower taxes and he he doesn't like the state government, and it's like it just goes to show you that like you you can irritate voters enough that they'll vote for anyone else yeah and the other point and it's it's probably uh too late to make this in the final minute here uh that we have before we turn over to our colleague bill but you know just the the total separation between you know the political apparatus and the media apparatus and all of these people who are engaging these conversations they're just totally separate from normal average people i would say that my radical sort of uh contribution to this is that we should move to decentralize as much <laughs> the centers of power, media, politics, to other capitals, other states as much as possible. That would have at least a little bit of help. But man, I, I tell you, ordinary people tuning in, voting, they made a difference. And uh, that's great to see. Oh, yeah. So cool. Yeah, Running out absolutely. first segment, we'll be back uh, talking about COP26. Uh, happening over there in Glasgow, Scotland. A little uh, simultaneous release with our colleague Bill Vietz and the Consumer Podcast. You guys are listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. All right. Looking up for a great consumer podcast, Consumer Choice Radio Joint Venture, simultaneous. Uh, we have myself, we have David Clement, and our colleague Bill Vietz. Bill, how goes it? All good. Ready to talk about COP26. So let's jump into that. We're talking about the UN Climate Change Conference taking place in Glasgow, Scotland. And they've come together on various agreements. We'll see what really happens in the negotiations. All we're hearing about is... We're going to start restricting methane, and we're hearing about smaller countries in the global south specifically that would like to have some kind of financial compensation. Uh, we'll start with you, Bill. You cover a lot of the activities of environmentalists 
and uh, what they're up to. Uh, what is your sort of quick take on this? And uh, from your good friends at the environmentalists, uh, how are they feeling so far? Well, first of all, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you got it right that it's actually in Glasgow, not Edinburgh, unlike what uh, CNN was reporting initially. <laughs> Wolf Blitzer wasn't quite so sure where he was. Uh, who, who makes that mistake? Like, wow. That just seems like such a monumental mistake. It's like saying, oh, yeah, we're proudly reporting from New York City and you're in Boston. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, that, when, the, when the Schengen uh, Agreement was signed, uh, then French President Mitterrand was in Luxembourg for the signing. And then he, he started his speech by saying, we are so proud to be here in this tiny town in the Netherlands, uh, which doesn't even border Luxembourg. So uh, it's not the first one who makes that mistake. Um, as per your question, uh, Yael, well, so there's a um, COP26 is actually quite an important COP. So there's been quite a few that are just sort of annual meetings. But COP26 is actually designed to define exactly how to interpret the goals that the parties have set themselves in the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. And what is interesting is that, well, there's interpretative differences as to who can reach their goals how. So China, for instance, uh, they, uh, they commit to net zero by 2060, and, uh, and that they, they also say that they will peak their emissions at 2030. And f to be able to do that, they need to significantly increase uh, solar power, uh, solar, solar power electricity production. So a lot of the countries um, are doing well by the standards that we've set. Uh, there's even a country in Africa, Gambia, which uh, which is actually within the target range, which is uh, very, um, well, it's odd for a country to actually reach those. And then it's countries such as Singapore and Russia, Russia specifically, that are very, very far behind the commitments that have been set. Um, it's a lot of diplomacy that actually happens at COP26. It's about like managing to tell your country that not too much is going to change for consumers, but at the same time also manifest that you've made some sort of commitments uh, towards the other parties. So a lot of diplomacy and very little actual policy. I mean, and naturally, Bill, the only way to ever to talk about or to have those diplomatic talks is by flying via private jet to Scotland. Everybody. That is obviously the only way in which these diplomatic talks could take place, correct? I, I can't think of any technology that would maybe facilitate them having that conversation virtually. So, Yeah, they could have done it all, over, all on Zoom. Could have done it on the Zoom, the Zoom cast. <laughs> Yeah, COP26 actually emits the, the, the CO2 emissions the, uh, of the equivalent of 7,000 homes. Um, now, the UN says that it will offset this by planting trees. I'm not exactly sure where those trees are going to be planted, because actually all the member parties of COP are also way behind their targets on planting trees. In the UK, it's 100 million trees a year that need to be planted to, 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 to reach the carbon like net emissions uh, goal. I'm not, a, not exactly sure where those trees are going to go. Just add it to the tally. It's this kind of thing that keeps growing in the background. You know, it's like uh, like compounding interest. Uh, one part that is coming out of this, by the way, is a uh, $10.5 billion in a fund that is supposed to spur green energy in poorer countries. A lot of the money is coming from uh, the larger countries, but also some foundations. Uh, we have our usual Rockendeller Foundation, apparently the IKEA Foundation. Uh, so your furniture is going to that. And Bezos's Earth Fund and there'll be more money coming from different finance banks and all the rest. Uh, 
you know, is that should that be a priority? I don't know what you think, David, if, if the priority should be getting billions of dollars uh, to poorer countries or the global south uh, for green energy projects. I mean, it depends if those green energy projects are scalable. I mean, the traditional argument here is that environmentalism is a uh, it's a unique capacity of wealthy countries as you as you become wealthier you then have the ability to um, take some risks on alternative forms of energy and care more about the environment you can tolerate that kind of intrusion into like quality of life or energy costs and things like that it's paying let's say a dollar fifty per liter of gas in Canada is is not ideal but Canadians can tolerate that more than a developed country where that would just be absolutely devastating. So, I mean, the thing that really irks me in all of this is if these projects can be scaled up, and I mean, I'm not 100% sure that a lot of them can, certainly not in the short term. I mean, if we look at the issues in the solar market right now, um, it's basically in disarray because the world heavily relies on China. There are forced labor uh, and essentially concentration camp labor accusations, which I don't know if they're true, but they're probably true. There's a trade war going on between um, between the United States and China, which includes solar panels, which is kind of disrupting the growth in the U.S. market. And so how do you square that and say, hey, we want to export we want to send billions of dollars worth of solar panels to the developing world so that they can plug in and have green energy. That sounds great, but there's a lot between A to Z here that requires some some serious logistical uh, heavy lifting. And yeah, I and I think any- I think we've we've probably done more thinking on that in the course of the last eight minutes uh, than they have throughout this entire thing. It feels uh, because- like it. As the New York Times headline uh, stated earlier today, it was, uh, the world leaders have left. Now the focus goes to who will pay. And related to that, I have to ask you this question, uh, David, because there's a Canadian player involved here. Mark Carney, former head of the Bank of England, uh, former uh, head of the Bank of Canada as well, is leading an alliance of over, jeez, uh, what is the amount of money that they said that they're going to commit now? They're talking about trillions of dollars, $130 trillion in collective assets. Uh, that is sort of the balance sheets of some of the world's biggest investors and banks. And Carney has uh, been able to corral them into say that they will be working with these countries to help them try to get uh, to their net zero emission uh, rankings uh, what do you think about uh, about that kind of Carney's uh, push in this? And very interesting because we know he's been trying to jump into politics uh, himself on the electoral side as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, if if this is something that the private industry wants to spearhead, that's I think obviously better than um, sending money from the developing world to the or sorry from the developed world to the developing world. And that's not that sending money to them is bad. It's just that the mechanism for which it gets to communities is bad because it has to go through governments in third world countries that are often corrupt or kleptocracies. And so 
the the private sector is probably better in regards to actually getting it's the same thing with foreign aid versus remittances um if we look at i mean the same concept would apply whether we're talking about foreign aid and remittances or um public sector public support for green energy pro- projects abroad or private sector support so that's certainly better um than the alternative um, and it's done so it seems like um, in regards to Carney without crazy suggestions about tax rates going up and all of that jazz which we've seen predominantly from the progressive left in the United States so I would say that would be one of the more optimistic things that I've seen uh, in regards to comments and I'm fairly certain that Carney also said um, that nuclear plays a, a really core role in this, which is refreshing because that gets left off of the table um, for really silly reasons. And I know, Bill, you've spoken and written about this before. Um, it just seems like a huge blind spot in regards to the pursuit of environmentalists because you have something that can produce clean, reliable, with a stress on reliable energy um, at very low costs over the long term, and yet everyone seems to love solar and wind. And it's and, and it's in the IPCC reports. Every calculation that the IPCC reports have done in terms of the energy mix is necessary. All include nuclear power, even increases in nuclear power. But in the European Union, we can't even get ourselves to agree on how to evaluate investments into nuclear energy. Um, because we, there's something, the European Union uh, uh, green taxonomy. So this is basically how investments into green tech will be taxed. And the question that the European Union so far has not been able to answer is whether nuclear energy is green or sustainable technology for electricity production. And so the countries are still battling it out. The EU is genuinely divided in two in terms of like who's, who, who stands where on the, on the question of nuclear energy. You have France on one side and then Finland, where the Green Party has even changed uh, a, a position on nuclear energy over the years, where they say nuclear energy must be a part of it. And then you have all the countries, including Germany, which is phasing out nuclear energy, especially since the Fukushima incident in 2011, and, and those are against it. So um, this also really sends mixed, mixed messaging to developing nations. You know, let's say you're an African country and you look towards Europe to find answers on your electricity grid and what you need, and you see that the European Union can't even decide whether nuclear power is, is sustainable – which it is. It is. It is. It is. It is carbon neutral. And also many of the countries that we call developing nations actually even have the natural resources to make nuclear energy themselves. What they lack is the know-how. So I don't think it should be actually be that much about the, the funds and the money. We could share know-how. We could send scientists to different developing nations and explain how uh, uh, best to, to get started and build nuclear plants as quickly as possible. The Czech Republic right now uh, is, is, is building nuclear nuclear power plants, first one to be completed by 2036. But then they get all types of uh, green groups and and, and flag from the European Union. It's like, oh, well, we don't know exactly whether we can count this towards your green targets. Well, it's it's so obviously should. And I think, Bill, you have a big emphasis on, you know, what the actual debate should be on that. Um, But again, looking at the agenda, you know, they're not looking at the merits of, let's say, nuclear or exactly how the technologies are, much like the Times headline says it has to do with climate finance. And I actually was listening to the radio this morning and hearing one of the delegates who was interviewed uh, from Togo or some African nation, I don't remember. And basically she was saying that the entire point of being there as a developing country is you're there 
to bring home money for your country. <laughs> That's essentially what it comes down to is they don't want to hear about the investments. They don't want to hear about, you know, this particular company will sign this contract with you. They just want to have a cash infusion into the treasuries of those countries so that they can help uh, adapt or mitigate uh, some of the effects of climate change that they say are more impactful and more harmful in those places. Now, I don't know if we're judging that. Uh, maybe we're just going off of the IPCC reports. I'm not really sure. But the climate finance thing, and, and particularly because it is so center to the negotiations so far, I think that's going to take way more of a role than you guys. Are, I think you're being very optimistic in terms of them getting down to the nitty gritty on the different energies and comparing them. Uh, well, I think you know it's just who, up to money. You know who has gotten to the nitty gritty of how they're actually going to do it? China. Because they announced yesterday they're going to build 150 new uh, nuclear reactors over the next 15 years, which would be more than the rest of the world has built in the past 35. So you have the largest emitter in the world. Now, I'm no fan of the Chinese Communist Party, but maybe they'll actually get this right. And look at this from a environment perspective. So you have China, who has no record really to stand on, who could essentially be a world leader at some point in terms of actually reducing emissions um, and making a serious effort to reduce emissions, but then also factor in the geopolitical side of this. So you have like the, the duopoly of, of the United States and China competing on the world stage and one has basically committed to a massive infrastructure build out of nuclear energy, which beyond being green has incredible uh, energy production and productivity capacity with it. And then you have another who just doesn't, the United States, who doesn't necessarily really have the appetite to do that, um, especially among progressives on the left who care more passionately about aggressive environmental policy than let's say republicans and so it's just like that should be the clear signal that like the decision has been made and the the eu the united states canada should just collectively decide that this has to be a play a bigger role in whatever the climate goals are on a climate perspective but also on a geopolitical perspective and and that competition between the eu the 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 G7, essentially, and China. I see this more as a, a tale from uh, Michael Crichton's State of Fear, if you guys have ever read that. I think uh, <laughs> we're, we're ripping from that book a bit. When, when in France in the 70s, uh, then-President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, when he switched the energy grid basically all the way to nuclear, it wasn't actually because he had any environmental considerations, but because he didn't want the country to be dependent on, 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 on countries like Russia. And when you look right now at the gas uh, price evolution, natural gas price evolutions in, in Europe. So we're very dependent on Russia. Um, whatever happens in Russia, we, we like it, it also influences the way we politically talk to certain countries because we're dependent on their resources. And nuclear energy has provided France um, with with the tools of uh, not just being more environmentally friendly compared to Germany. The, 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 it's not it's not even a competition at this point. France is so far ahead by comparison, but also uh, in independence. And I think that should also appeal to a lot of countries. Um, it seems so obvious, but as you said, it's, it's really not a conversation at COP. One thing that uh, we, you know, we're really not even looking at and we're not even thinking about is, you know, how do we how are we defining the impacts 
of climate change and what's actually happening. Because I, I don't like when I just read various news headlines saying, well, the scientists there said that we need to do X and Y. It's like, well, what exactly did they say that needs to be done? Are they giving you the tools or are they just defining what the goal should be? Because the people who are coming up with the tools usually are political actors or economic actors. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, the climatologist from X and Y Institute saying that well, we, what's best to do is get rid of all the tractors that run on diesel. You know, there's, I don't know of many of those solutions. And there's a great article by one of our uh, favorite environmentalists and uh, political scientists, Bjorn Lomborg, about the seven myths about climate change. I'll just run through them really quick. And uh, if either of you guys have any comment on that, we can go into it quickly. Myth one, small islands are doomed by rising sea levels. Number two, extreme weather events are killing more people. Three, climate lockdowns are a good solution. Oh boy. Uh, number four, electric cars don't harm the environment. That's an interesting one. Five, polar bears are going extinct on melting ice caps. Number six, to Bill's uh, plate, stop eating meat to save the planet. And number seven, wildfires are getting worse and proof of climate change. Yeah. I mean, on that first one, I think the the way that Bjorn puts this is really telling because he, he says, okay, what were the most monumental things that happened from 1900 to the year 2000? And people will list off like, oh, well, humans flew for the first time. We went to the moon, like all of the great achievements and then all of the negative things, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, et cetera, whatever. And he's like, no one will say sea levels rose a foot, <laughs> which they did. But nobody like... The, the human species just figured out a way to deal with that. And I think actually, Bill, you are, if I, if I am geolocating you correctly, you're currently residing in a city that figured that out um, in regards to how to manage um, or adapt and, and mitigate rising sea levels. And so the idea, I mean, I'm sure you both saw the trolling that was on Twitter that was like, if we don't, if we don't course correct in regards to climate change, this is what the U.S. will look like in 30 years. And they just took the Mediterranean and overlaid it over the U.S. And people shared it as if it was real. They actually thought that like 40% of the U.S. was going to be underwater in a well, year. Well, they just want the U.S. to be like Europe. That's why. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it, I mean, that's a the rising sea levels one. I mean, I, I again, another silly anecdotal story, but I remember being in a, a course in university and it was a, a third-year political science course, and the the person presenting was talking about sea ice melting and rising sea levels. And I put my hand up, and I'm like, you said sea ice? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, well, sea ice is suspended in the water as, a, as an ice cube is in a glass. Like, whether or not it melts could be a problem, but that will not increase sea levels. In the same way that when your ice cube melts, the the water level in your glass doesn't rise, and like the whole class was just like, "Oh, wait a second, that's true. Maybe that's already factored in." And so it just seems like there's a lot of nonsense that goes on, where it's like very dubious claims go unchallenged. And I think to your point, and I have to harp on this because we heard it over the summer with much of the flooding uh, throughout Central Europe. Um, just being so indicative of climate change when all of the 
studies that we have and the amount of deaths that we've had from flooding, when we actually look at how many people are harmed now with the technology that we have, with the dikes that we can put uh, in the river, <laughs> that we can build dams, you know, we, we can build the homes a lot better, we have much less erosion, we don't have that same level of destruction that we used to have with flooding. Uh, but all these extreme events, I mean, let's go back to the hurricane, I don't even remember its name, uh, a few months ago, it was this kind of same narrative, and you can't really challenge that at the time, because then you're, you know, you're seen as denying science, when really, we're just going to have to wait a year or two for that paper to come out, and then we'll come to the same conclusion anyway. I think, Yael, what you mentioned about the communication that's very interesting because you have one part, which is the communication about the facts and the, the communication about the solutions is not, by the same, it's not done by the same people. And that's very important because very often what politicians do is they take the IPCC report and they say, well, that is why we're doing this. But that's not exactly how that works. The IPCC report basically makes predictions about how to... Um, the, the possible scenarios in which you uh, influence the electricity grid, where you influence like uh, models in, in sustainable agriculture, and this will be the outcomes. And then there's politicians that have to make the choices. I think the facile deduction by that is saying, well, I mean, we chose one of the one of the possible scenarios, and well, that's what the science says. But that's not exactly how it works. And I would really wish that. Um, that we would shift away from the articles with the thumbnails where the planet's on fire to actually interviewing the people who did the reports because we would also get some perspective on how to go about this in a reasoned manner. Um, somebody really needs to take a look at the, the percentages between interviews with Greta Thunberg and her, uh, her people and the amount of scientists uh, who've actually been on panels on TV. Actually, you're right. And in the radio interview I mentioned, it had somebody from Fridays for Future on there. And um, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Greta Thunberg was a bit busy. She probably had a couple of interviews lined up. Well, one of my favorite tweets that I saw was, I, I, I guess Greta is like 17 now. or so, I, don't, I mean, time just seems warped over the last three years. But um, she's like 17 now, so she started doing this four years ago or something along those lines. And she said we had 12 years so we only have eight years now. And it's like that claim basically went unchallenged. And you have people who actually genuinely believe um, that now we only have eight years and that like climate catastrophe is, is en route if we don't drastically um, reduce our emissions. And we should reduce our emissions, of course. Um, but it, there's just no basis, and that went just unchallenged. No oh, look, one was David, like, wait a second. Al Gore is still on TV too, and you look you look at his <laughs> predictions. <laughs> I mean, like if all of this was true, and the, 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 we would see this in the market, right? Real estate prices in the Maldives would just be hemorrhaging; they would be approaching near zero if. They were all threatened of being underwater in eight years, and of course, or, or in Miami, you know, to give yeah. a you know good example. And I, I've heard that from a couple of real estate guys that say, well, once the prices you know start getting up there, there's a whole other issue there because you do have uh, state subsidized uh, property insurance, which is a whole other issue in Florida and, and uh, one of the biggest scams of all time. But uh, if we're we're talking about what, what you're discussing in terms of you know the the timeline here. Uh, this is also part of the Green New Deal uh, in the United States that uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, put together in her resolution, which failed and most people voted against. Uh, but in there, at the time, it was 12 years left. Um, 
And one part that we haven't discussed yet, but I have heard in many of the other stories, it's not as much on the agenda, but I do see a couple things over there at COP, is the idea of climate justice. And this goes a bit far from uh, more of the optimistic angles that you guys are talking about or even comparing the technologies and has to do with essentially you have the uh, West, the rich countries, they've been doing all this polluting around the world and these poorer countries uh, and marginalized peoples in those poorer countries have been harmed by all of this and there needs to be a reckoning to equalize so that we promote climate justice. You would, what do you, think you, of that, Bill? You would, you would think that that same line of thinking would also lead you to conclude that you can't actually lecture developing countries on their fossil fuel consumption because, well, you know, you fly over, or, or deforestation, by the way, you know, you, I, I've, I've mentioned this a few times, you fly over Europe and you take a look down at France or Germany, you won't see that much forest, but then the same politicians will fly over Brazil and look at the Amazon and be like, well, no trees can be cut down here. I mean, I know that we had all of our economic and, 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 and societal development because we were able to use agriculture in, in a smart way and develop the continent as a result but beware brazil were to do the same to me like if you talk about climate justice and you apply some of the same principles well then at least have some like perspective and say that okay well we're not going to make trade policy dependent on the same standards for 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 climate policies that we set because that's just taking influence on countries that we have no business in and that the agreement seems, a, seems to have been since the 1960s that we don't interfere in their policies. There's a name for that. It's called climate colonialism. And mm. for those folks from that worldview, colonialism is bad, which I think is a pretty general, um, pretty general claim and f fairly widely accepted claim if we're going back historically. But yet those same people who are so passionate about social justice from that lens have no issue cruising around the world and telling India what they have to do uh, or telling other, I mean, not even India, because I wouldn't consider India um, to the same level of some of the most impoverished nations in the world. But like, can you just imagine like AOC showing up in one of the, the poorest countries in Africa and just being like, no, guys, you can't do this anymore. Like, sorry, sorry that you earn a dollar fifty a day, but like, you're going to have to cut that out. Like, I'm and, sure she would go there and tell one tribe that they're maybe better than another tribe. And, and, uh, and it's a bit... And there might be me, some, some bad results. And it's a bit, it's a bit of the bigotry of, of, of low expectations as well. The, the fact, the idea that these countries don't have the self-realization that some of the impacts of climate change will hit them as well. No, we have to go and explain it to them and we have to set the targets for them uh, so that they come to those realizations. I'm pretty sure that if you live in a crowded... Uh, Indian or Chinese city and you see the pollution levels, you can figure out for yourself that there's something you should do about this. It's not because the United Nations send a resolution to you that you come to that conclusion. I think people have that, have that information as well and can process that information as well. But just because they don't reach the exact same solution and that they end up building nuclear power plants instead of solar panels, then now we have to go and lecture them. I don't, yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's, um, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of problems there. There's one book I would um, you know, bring up in this discussion. It's the book Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. Uh, and he discusses a lot the role of the IMF and the World Bank, and they've been giving out a lot of loans to different countries so that they can finance very large projects. Many times they are dams, uh, sometimes they're wind farms. And I have heard that in this discussion a bit, that many of these countries are significantly in debt. 
And sometimes it is because of these various projects. Other times it's because they've committed a lot more to social spending. Uh, but they just don't have the capital that we have in, in other countries. So they're not able to say we're going to build you know, some kind of biofuel plant or some kind of wind farm. It's going to have to come from uh, the Western world, whether it come through this agreement or private companies investing. I would much rather, as David said, have that be the private companies that are investing so that people also have jobs, You know, not like a Chinese job where they bring in all their own people and build it on their own and then leave. Uh, but I'm wondering you know, what that will kind of look like too, because the Again, the financial thing, that's really where, where the rubber meets the road here. Oh, man, never thought I'd use that. Uh, but that's fairly interesting because for us, we have all of the institutions. We have the capital. You know, we have the variations. I know in the U.S. last year, uh, renewables passed coal uh, in terms of consumption for the first time ever. And we're doing that on our own, not really because we're meeting any targets. That's just how the market is developing. That's what people are requesting. And I see that as only getting better. Yeah, I mean, I I do see it getting better. Um, I mean, but it brings me back to the solar example. And I see this all the time where uh, a community will bring forward a proposal to essentially build like community solar or connect residential solar panels to like a common grid. And it'll get voted down by council because local residents think it's ugly and they don't like it. <laughs> And so it's like nimbyism, nimbyism as a as a um, as a negative factor in regards to environmental outcomes, and so yeah, it's uh, it's been a great great talk with you guys. I think we're probably approaching our commercial break, but um, I feel like we could have chatted for an hour. Very true. Uh, good cross collaboration. Be sure to check out Bill's podcast, Consumer. Uh, we'll link to that in all of our show notes. I know we'll have Bill back on. And uh, for the Europeans, uh, check out Consumer Choice Radio as well. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio, myself at Y A E L O S S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
Hallelujah. Glory. 